everybody has a worldview. It is a lens that we look through our world through, and everybody has one. Um, There is only one correct worldview, though, and, and I'm going to try to convince you through this series, and especially through today, that you should adopt the Christian worldview, and here is why. Everybody has four questions in life, and your worldview needs to answer these four questions, and if it leaves one of them out of it, you need to search for answers until you find one. Here's the four questions of life. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Let me quickly break these down. Origin, how did I get here? Not every religion answers that. Atheism and agnosticism have a very difficult time answering that one. Origin, how did I get here? Meaning, why am I here? Why do I exist in the first place? The third one, morality. How do I live? How do I discern or differentiate between what is right and what is wrong? What is good and what is evil? And the fourth one is destiny. What happens after death? Now, only Christianity answers all four of these. Atheism, agnosticism, and other religions struggle to answer all of these, and most of them leave one of the four answers wrong. It is, I'm sorry, one of the four answers or questions unanswered. It is only through Christianity that you will find a correct full world, world view. And so I'm going to give you today 10 arguments for the existence of God. Now, what I'm going to share is a lot more heady, so you might want to be ready to take notes or have your picture, uh, your phone ready to take pictures of the screen so that you could study it for yourself and you can follow along. Or maybe you can share this with another co-worker or friend this week. Um, but in case you don't accept Scripture as a supreme source already, in week three, we hope to convince you of that. But in case you don't, I'm going to give you 10 arguments, and I'm going to start without using Scripture because I want to convince you without using Scripture first, and then on the back end of every point, I'll give you a Scripture that shows Scripture also confirms this, by the way, all right? So here's the first one. Number one is the cosmological argument. The cosmological argument. That is a fancy way of saying, how did the world get here? We know from physics, we know from science, that for every effect, there is a cause. (laughs) Um, All things must be traced back to a first cause, God the Creator. Let me give you an example. Here is our bank card. This bank card tells you that if I'm holding this, it tells you a lot more to the story. It tells you there is a bank somewhere. There is hopefully money in that bank somewhere. It tells you that there is a plastic creator somewhere to make the card. It tells you there is a designer somewhere to make the logo. I could go on and on on how much this existence, this effect tells us There is a creator and a designer somewhere. In the same way, when I look at the globe, I have to ask the question, where did it come from? How did it get here? 
who is the creator of it and and uh, um, what kind of answers does that tell me about it and so when we look at the cosmos we have to see that there must be a creator Genesis 1 verse 1 the first scripture in our Bible says in the beginning God the fourth word is God and by the way the Bible spends no time wasted on trying to convince you God is real because it already assumes you must assume looking at the world you exist in that this didn't happen by chance and cosmos this wasn't by accident so the Bible doesn't waste any time in trying to convince you God because you already know instinctively there's something going on here and so I, I hope to um, convince you a little bit more, but a lot of um, evolutionists, uh, 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 first verse of their Bible would say, in the beginning, the Big Bang created. Next week, I'm going to walk line by line through Genesis 1 and tell you why how I know that evolution is not the real way, that creationism is something to stand on. And by the way, we often think that religion and science are at odds with one another. I want to tell you that science is more and more proving that these words hold their weight. It is actually proving it. I will show you more about that next week. Tell your neighbor, we got to come back. <laughs> All right. Number two. The second argument for God's existence is the teleological argument. That's a fancy word for saying the, the, the law of design and purpose. When we look at something with an intelligent design, we believe there was an intelligent inventor, an intelligent creator. Now, in our extended family, we have a hoarder in the family. Anybody in y'all's family likes to hold on to a whole bunch of junk, okay? Or any of y'all, you know, binge in a reality TV about hoarders, right? And you're like, that's horrible what they're hoarding, okay? Listen, my family and I went into a space where we had to figure out what we were going to do in helping with the situation and here is a picture of one of the rooms that we encountered when we went in there go ahead and put that up there now we had a lot of different strategies on how we could clean this place up but there was never one discussion with our family that said hold up guys what if we just wait another two months maybe it will somehow put itself into some functioning incredible order maybe we should just sit back and assume that it might end up in a better design than it is today we always instinctively knew that in order for some design or purpose to take place it's going to have to have an intervention of uh, intellect and so order does not come from chaos without intelligent intervention. Now, I thank our millennial generation for giving us a new game that they have all played and taught us. And maybe you, even if you're older than a millennial, have played it too. It's the bottle flip game. Come on, man. Isn't that an incredible game? Now, I want you to shout out to me the percentage likelihood that you believe if I flip this bottle it's gonna land upright on the first chance shout out to me what percentage chance you think it will happen 
10%, zero, 50. I heard 100%. You have more faith in me than I have in myself. Come on. Place that faith in God above, right? All right, so we got a, a bunch of different per, uh, uh, percentages, um, but very few believe it's 100%. All right, here we go. Drum roll, please. Come on. Oh, that was pretty darn close. Come on, let me try it again. And so what we often try to do is we just keep doing it over and over again, hoping that maybe one out of ten, there's a one out of ten chance that I might actually make it, or maybe it's closer to a one out of a hundred. Now let me say it this way. If I were to take a working watch apart, not, not like this iPhone, but like a, a working watch with gears and stuff, if I took it completely apart, and I held every part in my hand, and I threw it up LeBron James style into the air, the likelihood that it comes back down and somehow falls in perfectly working order on the first time is impossible. It is the same likelihood that this earth was created by mere chance and accidental purpose. I need you to see that... Our teleologic, there is a teleological argument of design and purpose that says that we instinctively know this world could not have gotten here except by a creator. Hebrews 11 verse 3 says, by faith we understand the entire universe was formed at God's command. That what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. Number three. The biological argument. The question of um, the law of life coming from pre-existing life. Experience tells us that we have never seen life come out of no life. Life comes out of pre-existing life. Babies come from a living mother and father. Uh, plants come from living. At no point have we ever seen, and at no point has science ever seen, life show up out of nowhere. Just poof, it never used to be, and today it is. And so when you look even at the biological argument, we see that experience tells us that life comes from pre-existing life. Um, which requires more faith? To believe we just showed up one day out of no life at all, or to believe we came from pre-existing life. I need you to see that those who claim to have no faith, maybe like an agnosticist, or if you're an atheist and you claim to have no faith, you actually have more faith in how we got here than I do. Because to come out of nowhere is a very large step. But to come from God, who you might not have seen or know, is a much smaller step than to believe we just showed up out of nowhere. In fact, in 1983, a world-renowned British cosmologist, Sir Fred Hoyle, said this. If you would compute the time required to get all 200,000 amino acids from just one human cell to come together by chance... It would be about 293.5 times the estimated age of the earth. In other words, this earth hasn't lasted long enough for it to have happened by mere chance. You can't even, you can't even come up with an accident of that much proportion to, to just fall into line where it just by chance made itself through time and chance 
that, that, that just one human cell would get the required 200,000 amino acids for it to function right. And that's just one of your billions of cells. How did the whole thing come to be without a divine intervention? John 14, verse 6, Jesus said this, I am the life. I am the life. Number four, the anthropological argument. Anthropology is the study of human beings and history and society. And and what it tells us, if there are human beings, there must be a human being maker. Um, Man is far far superior than any other animal. You're going to hear me talk about this a little bit more next week. But there is proof that we could not have just evolved from apes or monkeys because there is a differentiating factor inside every one of us. There is a God factor inside every single one of us. There is a soul, and no other animal has been described as having a soul. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. In other words... God has a fingerprint stamp on human beings. And when we look at human beings, we see that there must be a human being maker, not an evolutionist journey to a new creature. By the way, I might say this again next week. In, in the years we have studied, we have never seen one creature metamorph into a brand new creature. There is microevolution and proof of that. If I were to migrate to uh, Belize, for example, where it is hotter and the sun is hotter, I will microevolve and develop a tan that looks quite lovely. I'm wearing it today. But this pale skin is probably going to microevolve back to the winter skin. <laughs> All right? And so um, there's proof of that, but there is no proof of, uh, of a creature evolving from a. Uh, no, human beings haven't evolved into flying yet. That would be a pretty cool thing to evolve into. All right. Um, Number five, the ontological argument, which is man has an intuitive belief in God. If you study history, if you study societies, if you study the present, if you go in every culture, every society has always had a God to worship, whether it was Zeus Aphrodite, whether it was Hermes, whether it was the sun god, whether it was the rain god, whether it was, uh, I've been to Africa before where I saw people who, who believed in tribal religions. I was just in Belize where they said in the south they do practice voodoo and they have a god to worship. We went to a Mayan temple where they said the Mayans used to worship 150 gods, the sun god, the fertility god, the moon god, the, the the, the, the grass-growing God. Come on, there was a lot of them. I couldn't keep up with them. But at no point have we found a society that said we don't need a God. We don't need an explanation for how we get here. There is an intuitive belief in us to worship something. In fact, those who claim not to worship anything end up worshiping things like film producers or music, uh, uh, music artists or philosophy, or art, or a sport, or they worship atheism itself, claiming I don't need to worship something, yet I prove I have a need to worship something. 
And so that in itself tells us a little. And so I just want to take a quick break and tell you a little bit about how we went to Belize, a country that has Christians in it, has Mayans in it, has um, uh, uh, tribal religions in it, has Muslims in it. And what we found was no one who said, I don't believe in God. And there's not large pockets of that even throughout our earth. Um, but I, I want you to see that God showed up and used 21 people on our first missions trip. I want you to check this out. Be encouraged by it. See how you can make a difference because we're going to take trips like these every single year. Watch this and how God uses. Even though they have like nothing, this little like they still worship God with everything they have. Like they have, like we just left the worship set and they were singing as loud as they could, and it just reminded me, man, like we just praise God no matter what, no matter what we go through, we just we praise Him. The most influential thing that I think I've experienced thus far, um, we just were here at CarePoint. Uh, we just left the high school, the local high school. Um, and during worship, I was able to see over and over and over again this boy um, who was just hanging on the worship. Um, he was off to himself. He was hanging on Jordy's every word. So I went and I asked Kenton, I was like, I told him the situation and Kenton went and he's like, I feel like the Father's got something on my heart that you're going to do something great. And he was like, actually, would you pray for me? Um, that was such an amazing experience. So I'm thankful for that. really eye-opening and really heartbreaking seeing these people live the way they are. Um, and it just makes my heart hurt. And seeing all these kids in these, these schools and the places that they have to live. And it makes me want to like, get up and move and do something about it. Uh, one thing that really stuck out to me was they were, everyone was so grateful. They're um, grateful for what they have and grateful for what uh, we did for them. And it really just stuck out like, we complain even though like we don't we don't seem to notice all the stuff that we actually have and it's really it makes you uh really consider and notice the things that you have in life. Okay, we just went out to the local community here to people's homes and saw the houses they live in and just went up and went in some homes. They're very small. We have a small back shed in our yard and some of the houses were that size, maybe smaller, families of four or five living in these homes, and um, we were able to take them this really big bag of groceries and um, ask them how could we pray for them and ask them about their relationship with Jesus and then prayed over them. And some of them prayed for us, and it was just like the Holy Spirit was just moving, and it was really amazing. I asked one of the gentlemen how I could pray for him. And he said, pray that I get my life straight with God. And so I did that. And as I turned to walk away, I felt the Holy Spirit nudge me saying, why not right now? So I went back over to him and I asked him, I said, do you want to get your life right with God right now? Don't wait. Now's the time. And he said, yes, I would like to do that. So I was able to lead him in a sinner's prayer and was able to just have that moment with him. And it was very moving to see God working and very humbling to have God work for me. The most impactful thing for me here is just to 
see the spirit of some of these folks, you know, given their situation, that some of them can still rise above and, you know, have a free spirit and love Christ the way we all should. message to anyone who will listen baptizing them in the name of Jesus and we are so proud of this trip thank you for praying with us thank you for giving thank you for sowing into it and we're going to have a trip like this at least once a year so if you want to get prepared for that but what you will see is that even the people who did not previously um, give their life to Christ intuitively believed God was real and by the way, monkeys don't worship. Monkeys don't do this. There is no intuitive belief in animals to worship. Romans 1:19 says, "They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Though everything um, through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature come on that's some good stuff and we all have a desire to worship something number six is the moral argument and i'm going to speed up from here a little bit but the moral argument is that we all have a law of conscience and accountability in other words why does man have a conscience and a sense of right and wrong if there is no god that we all think we're held accountable to we, we all, every culture has defined right and wrong. Most cultures agree on central tenets, things like protect women and children, things like murder is wrong, things like it's highly frowned upon to eat human beings. All right, these, these are universal laws that we have instinctively kept because we must believe that there must, I'll be held accountable to someone who is a lawgiver in the first place. And we, we, write, we write on our hearts right and wrong. We have all felt things like whether you have religion or not. I gave you a bit of my orange. Why can't you give me a bit of your orange? Or how would you like it if everyone did the same thing to you? Or I was in line first. Or leave him alone. He isn't doing any harm. This, these are universal feelings of right and wrong that we all have a sense of. And we have to ask, where did it come from without a supreme lawgiver we're held accountable to? Here's a great way of saying it. How can you call a line crooked without a sense of knowing what a straight line looks like? And the fact that we know that's wrong and not straight is indicative of a lawgiver, someone who differ differentiates between right and wrong. 
a famous Christian apologist, was in a university debating with an atheist over uh, similar things we're talking about. And the atheist posed a question to the Christian, and he said this, um, why are you so scared of subjective morality? Subjective morality is a hot topic word where our culture has predominantly accepted, which is this. What's right for me is right for me. What's right for you is right for you. And there is no absolute truce. And so you do you and I do me, but I'm cool with this and therefore leave me alone. You have no right to tell me anything different. So the atheist asked the Christian, why are you so scared of subjective morality? And the Christian said, do you lock your doors at night? And he said, yes, I do. He said, then why are you scared of subjective morality? Because you believe that there might be people. He, he said it this way. He said, do you lock your doors at night? You're afraid of subjective morality because if morality is subjective, someone might decide it's okay to put a bullet between your eyes. The idea of living in a culture where we can't agree on right or wrongs, where everybody just gets to make it up, is incredibly fearful and apocalyptic sounding. Hitler didn't believe murder was wrong. And we see what that kind of atrocity uh, carries. I have been to Israel and I walked the Holocaust Museum in the middle of Jewish headquarters. I walked the Holocaust Museum. And there was a kid's museum where you walk into a cave that's pitch black and they tell you, hold the rail and keep moving. And all you can see are little small candles. You can't even see your hand in front of your face as you just walk and you hear someone reading the 1.5 million names of innocent children who could not defend themselves who were murdered in the Holocaust. Don't tell me that we get to decide whether murder's right or wrong. Don't tell me that we don't have an inward sense that this was wrong, no matter what culture you come from. And so there is a lawgiver. There is an instinctive understanding of a right and wrong. Romans 2, 14 and 15 says, Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. Number seven is the historical argument. The, that's the argument that all throughout history there seems to be a law of providence in history that though evil may show itself for a period of time we have never gone through long eras of time where good did not triumph we, we see that God has done miraculous interventions come on we, there, there is proof that these miraculous interventions of Egypt and the splitting of the sea they're starting to figure these things out and how science can prove these things to be true you could go search hospitals records for the impossible file and see that, that God's hand has been at work in people's lives. Even Josephus was a person who lived in the first century. He was not a follower of Jesus Christ, but he documented what he saw and he documented history outside of the Bible and in his book called The Antiquities of the Jews, he wrote, he was the Christ. And when upon the accusation of the principal men among us, 
Pilate had condemned him to a cross. Those who had first come to love him did not cease, for he appeared to them spending a third day restored to life. In other words, history books outside of the Bible says, figure that one out. <laughs> he had a large following. A man named Punches Pilate existed. He killed him. It didn't end the followers. And he showed up three days later and met with them. So history proves that there is a God that exists, which leads me to 8 and 9, the bibliological argument. If there is no God, how do we account for this? It has lasted for centuries. There are prophecies that come to the calculation of impossible that have proven to be true and come to pass. And if we believe there is no God, you have to explain how this is so accurate. You have to explain why it's been miraculously preserved. You have to explain that no matter how much it has been attacked by certain societies, it exists in prevalence today and it is consistently the number one purchased book in all of the world. They don't even put it on the top top 10 list anymore because they realized for for ages of keeping track of it it was always number one it is the assumed number one book in all of this world and if we do not believe God exists you have to explain how we have this and why it's so accurate mm, come back in week three where my buddy um, Ben Murray is going to teach even more about its authority its accuracy and why we can trust it number nine is the Christological argument. If there is no God, who's Jesus? History books tell us he existed. It proves he walked this land. He rose again, and if there is no God, you have to explain how he did what he did, which is documented in here and extra-biblical sources. I don't have time to break that down today. On week five, I'll talk more about how do I know Jesus is the only way. And the final one is number 10, the argument from congruity. In other words, if all of those nine other arguments work in harmony together, that is and of itself a miracle that has to be explained and accredited to by God. That he could take all these different things that I presented before the Bible, backed it up with scripture, and then it comes together into, it's a miracle in and of itself. And so what I want to do for you today is pray over you. If you would just bow your head and receive these words I speak. God, my heart is that today some people became convinced some who have wrestled with you, Father, I pray that you meet with them right where they're at. Whether they're in person right now, whether they're at home and uh, listening to this live stream, whether they, it's been shared to them on a podcast or YouTube, it's no accident that they have heard this whole thing. And Father, I pray over them, knowing that you're showing up in their life right now. And Father, what has started as a head argument or a logical understanding, Father, I thank you that you move from logic to heart. Father, I pray that their heart would be warm to you, that they would realize they are loved by a God who does exist, who has been for them, who has fought for them, who has loved for them, who sent his son to die for them. Father, convince us in this place shore up our confidence for those who have already believed in you that we would confidently evangelize and tell people about your name because it's the name above every single name in Jesus name I pray these things 
And with every head still bowed, every eye still closed. If you're in this place and you know I am far from God, but I realize today he's real. And he, he has prepared this message today, prepared this worship today, prepared the people who greeted today, prepared the people who set up broadcast streams today for you to hear this word because he loves you. And he wants a relationship with you. And so I won't embarrass you and I won't call you down. But I don't want you to be embarrassed to give your life to God. If you realize today, like four people in the first experience today, that I'm not right with God and I need to surrender my life to Him, whether it's for the first time or the fifth time, if you want to draw close to God and ask Him to forgive you of your sins, with no one looking around, would you just quickly throw your hand in the air real quick, high up into like up to heaven saying, that's me, and you can put it right back down. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. If you're online and that's you, you can just write in the chat, include me too. I'm in. And what the church is going to do is pray a prayer along with those who raise their hands, even the ones who wanted to raise their hands because they know God's working in their life. I pray today you'll pray this prayer along with us and give your life to Jesus Christ. Just repeat this prayer. Say, Jesus, I give you my life. I know I have sinned. I have messed up. And I ask you to forgive me. Father, take my life. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. When he died on that cross, he died to give me new life. I am forgiven through the blood of Jesus. Now I'm a brand new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And you hold my sin against me no longer. Thank you, God. I love you, Lord. And I want to live for you the rest of my days. Here's my life. It's yours. In Jesus' name. And the church erupted in praise as we said. Amen.